0: Hey, you guys, before the show officially starts, we have time to talk about a few things. Actually, just one thing. And the main thing, the only thing, the thing I want to talk to you guys about is Casper mattresses. You're probably familiar with Casper mattresses, they are super high quality, affordable mattresses that you order online. Uh, And then they arrive in a box and you think, how can a whole bed be in that box? I'm not saying the box is tiny. It's not like a jewelry box, Uh, but it is smaller than bed size. And then it comes with a cutting tool and you, which, you know, if you're into that kind of thing, which you will be. And then you open it up and you watch it unfurl and then you sleep better than you ever had in your entire life. And you think, why, why, why did I wait so long to get a Casper bed? Why are you waiting so long? Don't wait that long. Um you need this now. It's uh the bed is made with two technologies, latex foam and memory foam. So it has just the right sink and just the right bounce. And Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. Risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days, free delivery, painless returns. The mattresses are made in America. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com bestfriend and using the promo code bestfriend. So again, that's www.casper, C-A-S, PER.com slash best friend and u- using promo code best friend. Terms and conditions apply. Okay. Here is the episode with Alex Blagg. I really enjoyed talking with him. I think you'll enjoy listening. I hope you will. Please do. It's the desired response. And uh, here it is. Allison is your new best friend
1: good never
0: end? the way again. your new best friend. Hey everyone, hi, hello, it is me, Allison Rosen, and welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. I am sitting here in Dining Room Studios with Alex Blagg. He's a producer, writer, blogger father of twins what am i missing
2: uh a cancer
0: you seem like a cancer yeah. i get that i get that
2: <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's the most important part of my identity is my astrological sign so are you
0: on the cusp of anything or are you just
2: i actually i pay no attention to astrology i was just joking uh, oh i you, know you, you got it all you got it all I would, yeah you nailed me
0: Okay, well, we're done here then.
2: Yeah, we got it. Great podcast. Thanks, everybody. Uh, <laughs> this like, was really fun.
0: I feel like I know you better. Um, okay, so you and I both used to go on Red Eye.
2: Oh, yeah. At the
0: same time. Fox so News. That's right. Greg
2: Gutfeld.
0: That's the one. Um, and you were the managing editor of Best Week Ever, right?
2: Yes, so bestweekever.tv, that was like the kind of online digital extension of the old VH1 show. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a few years, yeah, I was like running that website for them and writing and blogging and doing web videos
0: and things like that. So that's sort of how I knew of you for a long time. um, And also someone who's, I thought of you as someone who's very funny on the internet.
2: Oh, thank you. And
0: then I turned around... I'm, I'm time elapsing yeah <laughs> and yeah. you were out here executive producing at midnight
2: yeah that's right i'm i'm the co-creator and executive producer of, of at midnight on comedy central uh on which you were very funny
0: oh thank you very much yeah. uh and you also write for workaholics yes, right yes um and we're just getting some of the bigger names out of the way and then we're yep. gonna drill down yeah gonna, yeah uh so workaholics um you wrote and were in that show betas yes yes um you wrote a movie fuck Mary kill yes that was on the blacklist for those who don't know the (laughs) i only learned about this like a year ago uh the blacklist is
2: it's a list of the best unproduced screenplays of the year that if you get on the list, you will get a year's worth of free general meetings.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. You regular listeners know how I feel about general meetings. I've talked about it so often that I've thought if ever someone that I'm going to have a general meeting with listens to this, I'm shooting myself in the foot. But so you posted a picture of a bunch of water bottles And then, do you remember the cat? You, like, referred to it as an homage to general meetings. Yeah, I believe I... Because
2: my friends and I, we call them fallen generals, uh, (laughs) empty water bottles. Because, yeah, if anything even remotely decent happens to you in show business, or if you... I don't know. Have agents or managers that are are worth the percentage that you're paying them. You just go on these these meetings all the time. That uh, there's no purpose to them. You're not pitching them anything. You're not talking about a specific project. It's literally just to meet these people. So in some future scenario in which you've become wildly more successful, they can be like, "Oh, we have a relationship." Is that
0: what it is? I think is that's it what that it is. At your current level, you're nothing to them. But it's just. A placeholder for if someone else decides you're a big deal. Yeah, because has okay. I did not mean to get this bitter and specific <laughs> off the bat. I like to wait to get into that later. No, let's has just. Has anything in your career come from a general meeting? Uh,
2: no, not, not I'm. I'm. Let me think. No, I don't think it has.
0: Okay. Yeah, me neither. I I haven't done them in a while, but I went on a ton of them in the past, and I always felt like. I this is a puzzle and I have no idea how to solve it because I'm not sure exactly why I'm here. And this was when I was, like, in theory, I was meeting with people who were producing talk shows that are no longer on the air and maybe they were looking for someone to talk about this or that. Yeah. It's like it was so, so g- general, yeah. like the name, um, that I just, I had no idea in what way I was supposed to present myself. So I just was myself. And yeah. then I remember my agent at the time was like, she thought you were a little... She was surprised at how normal you were. And it made <laughs> me think, what the hell is everyone else doing when they come in? Yeah. And then it was explained to me that this is... It's like an audition. It's just you have no script and you have no idea what the project is. But you are supposed to dance for them somehow. It's an and audition just,
2: for your personality.
0: Yes. <laughs> so you're supposed to make a very compressed artificial version of it and yeah. then present it. Right. Yeah. I was essentially supposed to sell myself, which yeah. is obvious, but I, I think I was naive enough that I'm like, we're just going to have a chat. Right. And that is not what they are at all. You're supposed to go in there and like, if you're a comedian, you probably are doing some of your material in there.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, what's weird for me is I've actually been on both sides of it. Cause I'm also, uh, you know, I'm a writer and, and you know, comedian and performer sometimes But I'm also a producer and so I will be having generals where people are coming to me, you know, like other writers and comedians and stuff are coming to me and it's like, I always feel bad because I, I, having been in their position, I know how weird and uncomfortable and just like, you know, vague this, the the context of this meeting is. So it's funny because like, I think my partners, my producing partners, um, I'm always like the one that like, even in a general that I'm taking as a producer, I'm always like trying to like get something going where I'm like, well, what if we work together on this? What if we had this idea? You know, mm-hmm. what about uh, this and that? And they're always just like, sometimes, you know, they're like, you need to calm down. Like sometimes this meeting is just about getting to know people, but I just don't like that. It's like, I feel like if I'm spending an hour of my day of my work day, you know, meeting like a, a young performer, a writer who I like and respect, like I always kind of go into it with an agenda of like, okay, well, what's going to come out of this that's going to be like maybe a cool sort of opportunity to collaborate or something? Right. So I don't just feel like I just wasted an hour kind of sitting in a room having a fake get to know you (laughs) conversation, you know?
0: Um, Okay, well, so then same question, but with you on the flip side, have you have the people that you've met at Generals when you're hosting the general meeting, let's say, gone on to anything with you?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm such I I think I'm probably unlike most producers where when I've gone into them as a writer. Right. I feel like you just described, which is like I'm doing this weird song and dance and trying to seem like charming and witty and funny and give them a sense of my my personal history and backstory and, you know, kind of compressing my entire life into this like little digestible narrative that I'm like starting to sweat just thinking
0: about it. It's, it it poses a lot of structural problems. Yeah, it (laughs) does. How do you parse it out? When do you share this? If you have, Oh, ah. okay, go ahead. So I
2: I think because I have empathy for that experience and because I just disliked it so much myself that, you know, uh, yeah, I'm always looking for, when I'm taking a general of like what's something we can do together, and I'm right. I'm I'm probably I would say uh you know something that's um uh uh a challenge for me as a producer is i'm probably overzealous like Mm -hmm. i want i just if i hear a good idea like my my mind gets going and my wheels start turning and i just get really excited about it and i'm like yeah i can see it let's let's figure this out you know and and my partners are always like well let's just wait and talk about it and then we'll decide as collectively as a group if we we want to do this thing before you're like immediately in the room like yes i love it let's go (laughs) you know uh but i just yeah i just don't I don't know. I like to I like to make stuff and do stuff and not just like sit around and and talk about it, you know.
0: Do you um feel like it would behoove you to be more jaded?
2: I mean, or don't reserved? get me wrong. Like in those meet in that context, like yeah, be a little well, yes. I yeah. feel like I would be I feel like the correct thing to do as a as a producer that's that's, you know, that's busy and and doing a lot of stuff and and taking a lot of meetings or pitches or whatever is yeah, to try to like sit back and, and, you know, um, I don't know, not, (laughs) I don't know, as I'm saying this, I'm like, that just doesn't feel right to me. It's just like, if you like an idea or you like a person or something like, I don't know, it's it's hard for me to turn that off that Mm -hmm. the creative part of like, you know, when somebody like pitches you something or, or, you know, communicates an idea that you get excited about, it's very hard for me to kind of like put my creative part of my brain aside and, and ignore that. Uh, being the kind of from a conservative business standpoint of like (laughs) I need to think about the repercussions of like can I take on that additional project and and I think that's part of like why my partners and I work so well together is like I come from a you know a comedy and a writing background they come from much more of a business background they were both like agents at UTA and 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 I think we sort of approach it a little bit differently but in like a complimentary way Mm -hmm. where they will sometimes sort of help balance me out and like be like Okay, let's think about the big picture of this. Like, yes, we all agree we can see what this project would be, but is anybody else going to buy it? Is there any, you know, is there, is there even, is it worth the time that we're inevitably going to have to invest into this to to develop it into something? You know, and and they, I think they kind of help curb my enthusiasm, um, as it were.
0: In terms of how the three of you work together, do you tend to be the most enthusiastic and? Like, do you kind of find your, like, are you the typical cancer? I'm just kidding. I have no <laughs> idea what the typical cancer is. Do you find that there are certain roles that you each typically take?
2: Yeah. I think, you know, we, what's good about it is that we all have like overlapping skill sets. I think, like, even though they come from more of, uh, on the business side of the, you know, of, of a background, they also have really good creative instincts and, and a lot of smart ideas that I think are additive and help the projects that that we're doing. And I think even though I'm coming from more of like the kind of sort of creative side of the business, um, you know, I think I also have somewhat, you know, I can have a good instinct for sort of uh, entrepreneurial opportunities and, and um you know, and, and, and some kind of handle on the business side of things that we're all able to kind of have all of these discussions together. And we really do sort of operate as like a, a brain trust. Mm-hmm. Um so no one person is really making, you know, all the decisions or calling all the shots. It's it's definitely kind of a collaborative partnership and I think that I know that that helps me a lot just in the way that I work, you know, that I just I, I even as a writer it's like I love like being in a TV writers room or something because it's so collaborative and you're 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 having, you know, I I sort of thrive off other people's ideas and and can kind of add on and build to those things. And I think sometimes like I need a filter for my own ideas and Mm -hmm. instincts. And um, yeah, so I I feel like it it kind of works. It works out well that way. I don't even know how we got to here. But is
0: there this might be a hard question. Is there an example of a creative endeavor you have been involved in? um, It could be a while ago where you didn't have that filter and you didn't have people to bounce ideas off of. And it wasn't as good as it could be could have been because of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel like, you know, because what's weird is I, I, there's like multiple parts of, I would say, my my kind of career and my business, you know. So I have the producing stuff I do with John and Jason through Serious Business, which is, you know, At Midnight and a bunch of other shows that we, we've set up and sold uh, at other places. Then, as you mentioned, uh, I, I work uh, individually as a scripted writer in television and on, you know, workaholics and betas and, and other projects. And then I have a, a movie writing a feature writing um, career that I, I have a partner with this guy Neil Shaw um, and
0: oh didn't he used to write for Gawker yeah yeah he mm-hmm. used to
2: we, we met in New York he used to work in in yeah Gawker and college humor and was like a columnist for the New York Post or something um, but it's like it's three kind of very sort of separate you know kind of creative endeavors and businesses and and I think the one area where I'm writing, most you know where i'm working kind of in a, the most solitary environment which is just writing my own projects i i do like i i think that um there sometimes they're just not a, you know they're not as strong as as just having other people to bounce things off like of. is just, there a
0: piece of shit out there that has your name on it
2: oh yeah for sure i mean like i probably haven't even written like i have a i've written a few screenplays alone and a few pilots alone and I mean, maybe one of them I would like confidently stand <laughs> behind and be like, "This is good, I like it." The rest of them are are just yeah. They were they were kind of each individual unique failures in their own way. And I think part of it is like, you know, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more in touch with my creative sort of limitations and obstacles and, and bad habits and things like that. And you where, know, what are they? Well, my I'm definitely like the person who. I will write a first draft and just be ready to send it out, you know, (laughs) like, uh, here it is, you know, like I, I, you know, and and it's, that's the worst thing you can do because as, as the old cliche is like writing is rewriting and and that's really true. You know, it's like, you have to, you have to get something on paper and then you have to spend a lot of time going over and over again, making it good. And I just am, I, I think I'm like kind of, ADD and Mm -hmm. like I I just and also it's just like that thing where you've written something alone in a vacuum and you just I I crave somebody else's feedback and and input and so yeah like I think in the past maybe I I probably sent things out before I should have you know before I had really spent the time like honing and making them good and figuring out like what was working and what was not working um but you know I think also having these kind of partnerships has has helped me learn about myself and like you know having more self-awareness as a writer and creative person i think does help and makes you better because then you're like uh, aware of and, and looking out for the sort of pitfalls that you're likely to fall into
0: so when i hear about all the things you do i think you must be really really busy are you or is there some way that these three things all work together in a not um uh, Mania-inducing kind <laughs> of organization. Yeah,
2: no, I mean it's. I am busy, but I've also I've really kind of worked hard to sort of um, organize and design my life in a way that allows me to do as much as I can. You know, um, I get up very early. I go to what sleep time? pretty early. I get up at six mm. uh, every day, and um, and that you know that that helps. Like, I try to be somewhat like efficient with my time. Um, and then, you know, there have been times as my career has evolved, you know, in all three of these arenas, there are starting to be some, you know, kind of overlaps and, and ways that they I can kind of strategically put things together that that does help with the time management stuff. But there's also definitely times where, like, you know, I'm out with a movie pitch and, you know, trying to work on a a show we're producing and, and uh, you know, writing a new pilot or whatever at the same time. And then it's just a matter of like finding little pockets of time throughout the day and, and, you know, correctly allotting time to each of those things to make sure they're all just moving forward. You know,
0: how do you feel about whiteboards? This comes up on the show.
2: Yeah. I like whiteboards. I mean, that was something that I never used them until I got into a writer's room. And uh, I mean, so much of, both of the writers' rooms, the scripted writers' rooms that I've been in were, you know, it's it's all about the whiteboard. You're just sitting there all day long looking at a whiteboard and, you know, writing ideas onto it and moving them around. And, and it's almost like doing this, like, collective crossword puzzle sometimes <laughs> that you're, you know, except instead of words and clues, you're throwing out, like, personal life experiences and anecdotes and jokes and you know, room bits or whatever, and, and kind of slowly putting this puzzle of a, an episode together. And I love that process. Like, it's so fun for me to, to do that. And like, it really taught me the value of, of truly like breaking down a story into its like elemental beats and, figuring all that stuff out because the way that that scripted tv works is i mean you know the the room collectively goes through these steps where you're starting from just like blue sky ideas like oh an episode where this happens or that happens and then you're kind of like okay well what would that look like you know what's sort of the broad strokes of that right and then you kind of do like a real broad stroke sort of breakdown of it and then you're like okay let's flesh out act one act two act three and it's like as each of those steps the whole thing is just becoming more and more kind of like distilled mm-hmm. and and deeper and richer and fuller and by the time by the end of it the the writer who's assigned that episode um goes off to write a one sheet and then an outline and it's like it's kind of the most fun way to write because it's all sort of the hard work has been done by the the room by the mm-hmm. team and, and like you, you just kind of get to give it some like, give it your flavor and like add some of your sort of voice and jokes to it. Um, and it's like taught me a lot how like when I'm trying to write by myself, I try to, you know, do what I can to replicate the process that that I've learned in scripted.
0: So how rooms. frequently do you work on workaholics?
2: Uh, this last season was my first season. On I just worked on it over the summer. Um, and that was like a dream job. Those guys are are super funny and just like, all three of them are in the room together, which was, that was an interesting and kind of new thing for me where like, you know, you're actually pitching jokes and lines to the people that are going to say them. And like, they've done the show. This was the sixth season Mm -hmm. that I was writing on. So it's like, they have it so figured out. They know who they are. They know who their characters are. They know what works for their show. And, you know, that was a really cool thing to kind of be sort of like jump into that process and sort of learn how they do it. And like, everybody there was just super nice and like it's just a very like laid back relaxed vibe because it's like you know you work on a show that's like in its first season and it's just like it's naturally just a little bit like everyone's a little nervous and sweaty and like trying to figure Mm -hmm. this out and is the network gonna like it and blah 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 and and which was that the show betas I wrote for um which was also a great experience but it was much more of that where it was like you're kind of everyone's scrambling to figure the show out you know Um, But being on a show that was into its sixth season, it was just totally different because it was like it was just so relaxed because everyone was confident and like, yeah, we know what we're doing here Mm -hmm. and we're just going to like, you know, get together every day and throw out ideas and have fun. And no one was like nervous about, oh, my God, it's a deadline. You know, we got to get this outline out. Uh, And that was that was really cool. Um, And uh, it was a great, great staff of people. And the only the only the only negative thing about it is they. They actually shoot in this like uh hellish industrial wasteland in Van Nuys. <laughs> uh, like the office that they work at in the show is actually also the production offices, mm. which I think just used to be some kind of like, you know, I don't know, shitty sort of like bathroom fixture manufacturing sales <laughs> uh, outpost or something. And it's just like it's all made out of asbestos. And it's literally in the parking lot of the Target van nuys and so like the only thing that we would and there's nowhere you can walk to other than the target so it's like every day the whole writer's room's like our daily stroll through target (laughs) like finding weird uh weird things to buy to try to to try to crack each other up or whatever (laughs) but uh yeah so not much for um you know not much for scenery scenery, but uh otherwise a, a very very fun show
0: so that was this past summer that you were working on Workaholics and you were also for a time working as the head writer on At Midnight, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, so that Midnight was a show that, uh, was based on an idea I had like back before I even got into to television to producing or anything. I, when I was still working in web publishing, I, I had like an IG, you know, a G doc kind of a just random list of ideas. And I remember I wrote down, um, game show where comedians compete at hashtag games. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the the seed of of what that show became. And then when um I joined up with John and Jason, you know, I at that point had realized like you know I had done the best week ever thing. Um And then I moved out here to take a job running a couple big sort of entertainment websites and just was generally feeling like I did not like the direction that my career was taking. What websites? Um, the first one was called Wonderwall. for It's like MSN oh, yeah. site. And it's just like I this generic sort of celebrity news site. And like when I was hired... You know, they found me through Best Week Ever, which was more like pop culture comedy. And Mm -hmm. like there was celebrity news, uh, you know, as part of it. But it was more as like celebrities. They had a voice. Yeah, had a voice. It was like celebrities as fodder for jokes, you know. So I, I, you know, I always kind of identified as a comedy writer and like. So I took, but I took this job and then like it became pretty clear to me like, okay, this is not going to be a comedy site. This is literally like putting together, you know. It's like g- Us Weekly. Yeah. It's like photo galleries of like Kim Kardashian's Bikini Bod or whatever, <laughs> uh, which by the way, a little uh, web publishing tip for you. Uh, those do really well. Like yeah. It got to the point because the way that the site worked was like MSN has this homepage that like millions of people somehow still go to it's basically like your great aunt who like doesn't know how to change her home page <laughs> so every morning she opens her computer turns her computer on it's the msn page and so they get a ton of traffic anything they put on there that they link to will get you know millions of views and so they realize that with that like fire hose of traffic if you just put them into something that they can't stop clicking on mm-hmm. that they'll drive like a bajillion page views and so like we would literally be thinking of like how many like we, we put together galleries, I'm not kidding, of like 80 pictures of Kim Kardashian in a bathing suit <laughs> just because people would not stop clicking on them. Anyway, it was a terrible job. And mm-hmm. I was not, was not very happy doing that. And I had one more job kind of in that same space working for um, a company called Buzz Media. And I just was like, I got to I'm getting too far afield from what I want to be doing. So I quit doing which that. was comedy. Yeah, which was comedy and writing. I mean, really, like, my kind of ultimate sort of goal destination has been to, you know, write and create um, scripted television and movies. You know, mm-hmm. I was, like, from my earliest age, it's, like, what I always wanted to do. And I've taken kind of a weird winding and circuitous sort of journey towards that. But um that was, like, really the part of my, like, professional life where I felt like I was not going in the right direction you know like everything I do now it's like it's not always a straight line but it feels like generally it's like going towards where I want to be going
0: how long did you make um photo galleries on the internet (laughs) it was
2: a it was a two-year uh a two-year sort of diversion um for me
0: were you depressed during that time yeah
2: yeah I really was I was like it was a thing where like my wife and I would come home from work just so like you know bummed out and like feeling cynical about the internet in general i mean Mm -hmm. things like that when you start to realize like all the like gaming that people do for traffic and hits and how like ultimately it's like you have this audience of millions that but it's not a real audience because they're not actually there to read or see anything right like it's It's just it's just numbers yeah and it's like it's like i'm literally just like moving numbers around the internet for no purpose other than to sell and monetize ads you know and it's like and the second job I did after that, also Kardashian-related, so it was Buzz Media. It was like a network of celebrity and pop culture sites. And at the time, they were contracted to run the personal blogs and early social media presences of the kardashian fan with all the sisters mm-hmm. um among a couple of, you know like i think like what was her name kendra wilkinson some like random oh like, yes
0: from uh girls next door
2: yeah yeah and uh and so i was in charge of the whole sort of celebrity side of that thing and uh i remember one day i was like copy editing this post that was like a branded integration <laughs> from tampax that they had bought a thing where basically all the kardashian sisters had to do this like confessional blog post about their first periods and i'm reading (laughs) this not a terrible idea it's not a bad idea no but i'm i'm me as like a 32 year old man who wanted to be a writer and comedian in hollywood (laughs) i'm reading this thing as like the first person voice of kim kardashian talking about her first period and tampons and i'm just like I literally like floated above my body Mm -hmm. and looked down at myself and was just like, the fuck are you doing? Can I say fuck on here? Yes. Yes. Sorry. Uh, And, and yeah, it was like one of those moments that you just don't forget, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was like, I feel like that was the real rock bottom where I, I, you know, finally like after so many nights of kind of coming home, bummed out about my job and what I was up to that. Like, I was just like, I got to do something different. and, you know, my wife and I just kind of planned it out where we was like financially sort of saved a bunch of money Mm -hmm. that would be kind of a safety net that would allow me to quit my job and just sort of try to do something else. Um, And so the first thing I did, well, I, you know, I was like, I, I, once I finally quit, I was like home writing a pilot. I think I tried to write a TV pilot. It was awful. Can
0: I ask um, from how long was the time from where you and your wife planned it out to when you actually quit?
2: At that point, it was maybe four or five months. It wasn't that long, really. It was and just like—was
0: it just four or five months of like living as as cheaply as possible to save money?
2: Yeah, it was. It was a mixture of both being frugal and it was good timing. It was like good luck in a way. Where my wife, um, she's a freelance uh food stylist and culinary producer and so she works on a lot of like food tv shows Mm -hmm. and food ads and stuff like that and she was just really busy so she was working a lot so she was making a bunch of money and like as bad as those two jobs that i were doing i was doing out here they paid really well and so that was like part of why i think i took the job was just like as a 28 year old they they dangled a ton of money in front of me i was like that's not i'm gonna be rich you know it's like uh And so, yeah, we were able. I think in a few months to to save enough to where we basically just put all her money into savings, and I, you know, we lived on my salary, Mm -hmm. and um, and yeah, had just enough. I mean, it wasn't like we had like a large s yes, where we were like it was going to be a luxurious sort of uh <laughs> i'm gonna spend six months like traveling europe and go find myself right. it was like i have just enough runway to just figure something else out and mm-hmm. kind of reboot like what i'm doing with my life and uh and it, it's you know and it's funny because it's like my plan was like all right i'm gonna write a screenplay i'm gonna write a pilot i'm gonna go sell those and i'm gonna get a you know job in television and blah 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 and and it just, you know, it didn't work out like that. It was like I wrote a bad pilot that mm-hmm. my agent was like, you know, he put on a nice face and was kind of like, oh, this is a great first uh <laughs> first try." You know. <laughs> and he had like a ton of notes and What was and it about roughly? It, it was called IRL. It was called in oh. real life and it was about this was like in 2009, I think, and it was kind of during the sort of the Hills Laguna Beach mm-hmm. heyday and it was basically about a high school um a, where there was like an MTV reality show being shot, except it was about the kids that weren't on the reality mm-hmm. show. So it was sort of, uh, yeah. And it was just not, not well done. <laughs> it was really, um, you know, ham handed. And I just, did cause I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea how to write a TV pilot. And, um, but it was a good learning experience and I did it, you know, and I finished it. And I think that was sort of important and validating. And, you know, while I was kind of waiting for, you know, my agent to respond to her and whatever, I, like, started this kind of, I don't even know, it was like a joke um, where I was doing this thing called bajillionhits.biz that was, like, a blog and a series of videos where I played a character of this, like, ridiculous social media guru. And it was, like, kind of, like, all of the time that I had spent, even going back to, like, VH1 and MTV, and then... The two jobs i hated out here i I had to sit in like so many meetings with just like overpaid assholes that were like (laughs) it was like literally charging twenty thousand dollars to be like you gotta get on twitter (laughs) it's like (laughs) you know the future is now and uh and just full of these like kind of like digital platitudes about you know stuff that's obvious to anybody that's ever been online before i
0: i remember working because i my my um Past is working at magazines. I remember this one company is like, "We're not a magazine anymore. We're a digital destination." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like so much talk like that.
2: Yeah, I mean that. That's like ninety percent of what my character did was just like make up buzzwords mm-hmm. that were like you know fake. because That's like I feel like that's the whole sort of digital media commentary thing. It's just like who can come up with like the next hot made up nonsense word that that, that he used to describe a demographic or whatever is
0: that still a lucrative field bullshit media social media guru
2: i mean i think it is Probably, yeah i saw that you know this is like last year but aol has that guy shingy i don't know if anybody's ever seen shingy but Mm -hmm. if not google him because it will not be a waste of your time but he's just (laughs) this like He's like a ridiculous, like, minor character from Blade Runner that basically, like, has convinced AOL to pay him an executive salary to get up on stage at, like, conventions and festivals and tell a bunch of, like, you know, out of touch sort of media people <laughs> that, like, you know, the future is mobile. <laughs> he's literally, he, he has the accent. He, lo- I mean, his look is incredible. Seriously, Google image search, shingy. You will not be disappointed. But yeah, so I, to answer your question, I think, there are just, it's like snake oil salesmen. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just, there's so much money in it. And so many people are so desperately trying to figure out like how to monetize the internet. And especially as it's converged with Silicon Valley and, and tech culture, you know, there's just this whole class of sort of self-professed experts um, that have emerged to, you know, fill fill the void. Exactly. We're yeah, looking he's, at Shingy. He is the best. Uh, he like a character for South Park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Digital profit. Digital profit, mate. I'm. <laughs> oh my yeah, God. it's just, it's incredible. Um, and uh, yeah, so I feel like, the, I don't know, it, it, for whatever reason, it touched a nerve. I mean, it was like the kind of thing I wasn't trying to like, you know, uh, I, I had not thought through what I was doing. It was mm-hmm. just this almost like inside joke for like media people that I was friends with on the internet. And it weirdly touched this nerve where people were like, is he serious? Because like I presented it (laughs) as I was running a digital media guru consulting firm, you know, and I would come up with these like ridiculous strategies for growing your business and all of them were just totally made up absurd bullshit. And uh and but all these people were like, "Is it for real?" And it was like, it ended up getting on like TechCrunch and uh, you know, did they Fast... cover it
0: as if it were real? Or at first, it was like,
2: "What is this?" Like mm-hmm. Fast Company did this whole profile on me, where they <laughs> were like, "We can't tell if he's being <laughs> for real or if this is a joke." Um, and then but then it became clear, I think, over time, most people got that it was a joke. Um,
0: were they did Fast Company interview you? Yeah, yeah. Did, they, they did, did you do whole... it in character?
2: Yeah, and okay. it was weird. It was like a little. It was a little weird, and then and uh the daily beast did one too that I, I think i did in character and uh
0: but they so they didn't know they were getting a character
2: the 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 journalists i think knew they were getting a character the fast company one was a little bit more kind of like what is this the the mm-hmm. b- b- the um daily beast guy knew that I was a character like he called like the headline of that is they called they compared my character to like the Stephen Colbert of tech and and media stuff so it was like what he what Colbert was doing to like right-wing pundits is what I was trying to do to to you know idiot sort of digital (laughs) guru people and like and that was actually the I mean it was it was fun you know and like ended up being the thing like other than that failed pilot that I wrote that just went nowhere mm-hmm. like it ended up kind of being the thing that started to get me some attention and and like some meetings some general meetings <laughs> i got like some sick generals that i went on got a ton of sick free gens. water sick jennies <laughs> and uh and like you know it 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 weirdly led to like you know i was basically for a year able to kind of cobble together a living just like you know I would do, I would make videos for like, like I went to internet week, New York and made Mm -hmm. a bunch of videos for them and gave like a keynote thing. And, And then like a few conferences, like paid, like I got paid to like go to London and speak at this weird thing. And like, it was fun. And, and like, like I said, it was, it was nice to be able to sort of eke out a living doing comedy and doing something that was creative. But then the downside of it was like, because the character was such a like, ridiculous blowhard who also had my name. It was like, there was a weird kind of gray area where I started feeling like, Oh, like I don't want people to think this is actually who I right. am. Cause he's such an asshole. <laughs> um, and so I just, I, it, I started to get uncomfortable with it and then also just felt like, okay, I did this joke, you know, like everybody gets it. And it was a moment where I was like, okay, I could keep, I could really try to push this and like, mm-hmm. you know, blow it up and make it a thing and make this my brand or whatever um
0: i'm sorry which alex Blag am i talking yeah to right now? yeah
2: it's that's that's exactly the problem is <laughs> there would be too many times where i'd be saying something and it's like wait which version of me yeah. is that <laughs> uh and so yeah I, I kind of like quietly just sort of Retired that uh project and and you know sort of moved on and it was around the time then that i um John my producing partner mm-hmm. who at the time was actually my first agent at u t a and um he's the guy that got me that that job that moved me out here uh and we'd you know we'd been in touch and at that point in time he was like you know, I hate being an agent. I want to get out of, get out of this and I want to start a production company and actually like make stuff, but.
0: Just what you want to hear from your agent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like,
2: great. <laughs> but at that point, he'd already actually moved on and like, they, what they do is sometimes they'll hand you off to another mm, agent. Okay. So I was already at that point working with a different guy, but he was like, you know, I need somebody, you know, I want to start this production company, but I need somebody that kind of has more like of a creative background and would you be interested? And, in, you know, at the time my thinking was just like, well, I'm like still writing pilots and kind of, you know, waiting for the phone to ring, waiting for my agents to call to like, you know, get me another general <laughs> meeting or whatever. And so it was just like, yeah, I mean, I guess I need some kind of day job. And I feel like if I'm gonna do that, I'd rather at least be making stuff and working kind of within the same sort of, you know, industry that I wanna be working in ultimately as a writer in, of scripted television. And so um, we started up together with another guy with Jason who John knew from UTA. And um, and at the time, like, we just really, you know, when you're starting out as a production company, you're literally just calling yourselves producers. Like, you're not, <laughs> you haven't done anything mm-hmm. yet. And so, it's tougher at first because, you know, people don't take you that seriously. And, and so, and you kind of have to, like, really self-generate a lot of the projects that you're going to start out with which is what we did you know we came up with a whole list of things like a slate of ideas that um at midnight came out of
0: is that why you named yourselves what you named yourselves because you felt like you weren't being taken seriously
2: serious business yeah, yeah. it was like it was like a uh, a little bit of that it was just it was kind of like a self-deprecating joke about just that we we're not a ser- we're, we were like we did not look like three serious producers or whatever we were three young people without an office mm-hmm. and with you know having done nothing and so we as a joke like our whole visual identity looks very like it looks like the wall street journal like it's yes. very conservative we actually paid the wall street journal um illustrator who does all the little headcuts to draw headcuts of us and um You know, and so it was kind of, yeah, it was semi-ironic, I guess, sort of statement. It's
0: weird. So, you know, Jesse Thorne?
2: Yeah, of course.
0: Um, His Twitter avatar is that style as Mm -hmm. well. It's weird how that just confers respectability <laughs> uh, or like yeah. or telegraphs respectability like you look at it and you're just like oh i feel you know that should be on a tote bag that the npr that npr sent me it's weird how
2: it speaks to the yeah. the, the the decades of uh of uh, strength and integrity projected by the wall street journal brand that people just trust i guess that, i mean it's just marketing yeah but yeah it's it, you're right it though. works well yeah, I mean, and that's the that's you know we were kind of joking, and I, I don't I think some of the people we meet with get it, and mm. some of them don't, but you know it was fine. We we felt like we needed to like have some kind of sort of brand or something that we were putting forward since we didn't have much else, and um and yeah, and like early on, you know, we I could sort of told the guys like, oh, I have this idea for a game show, or you know, comedians compete in, in hashtag games, and I remember telling them like what hashtag games were because like I was sort of an early adopter of a lot of social media stuff and i I used you know hashtag the hashtag, hashtag games go all the way back to like i think i started seeing them in like 2007 2008 mm-hmm. i remember sitting there in my office and i would just like a totally nerd out on like you know stoner books or whatever and right. like pitch out like eight tweets and just like i don't know it like hit this button in my brain of like just wanting to like write jokes based on a, a premise like that and so And I always saw how like addictive and powerful Mm -hmm. that was and and I kind of explained it to them and showed them how like some of the recent hashtags like that had just like, you know, hundreds of thousands of tweets or whatever that people, you know, there was something there. And so we kind of figured out from there of like, you know, what the format of the show would be and kind of broke out you know what really became at midnight at the time we were calling it twitter dome we like our <laughs> it was a terrible title and uh our first because our first instinct was like oh we'll do this as like this super over the top like post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. like the battle to see who is the best at twitter because right. that's the most important thing you know and um and we shot a pod, and so we, well we took it to funny or die um and pitched it to them and, and mike farah and joe farrell the, the guys that run their tv business like they they sparked to it um, early on and were really helpful in just like like they brought uh, Tom Lennon and Ben Grant from from Reno 911 on board and they kind of helped us sort of shape the, the comedy and the voice of it and then we took it to Comedy Central and they're like, yeah, we love this. Let's do a pilot and uh, at the time we didn't really know who was going to host it so Tom Lennon hosted the pilot. Um,
0: I'm sorry. Is spark to it some media language that I'm not familiar with?
2: Spark to it?
0: you said that they sparked to it
2: oh yeah yeah they just liked it you know i, I yeah that's a maybe that's another bajillion it's <laughs> <this> phrase <that's laughs> i like it though around. i yeah. just have never heard it yeah they I just the like meetings. they like uh they sparked in that the uh, yeah whatever it, it, it did it for them or, right or whatever and uh. Sure. Um, yeah, so we shot this pilot with Tom hosting it, temporarily knowing cuz he couldn't host it in series cuz he's like super busy and successful guy that that uh, is is like on, you know, he's like on mm-hmm. CBS and writes a bunch of movies and stuff. Um so anyway, we did this pilot, came out great. Um and then Comedy Central had another project I think with Chris Hardwick um that that they loved him. Uh, but they didn't feel like that project was right for them. And they had the brilliant idea. I think Kent was just like, what if we put these things together? Mm. And that really was like the thing that that made it like, you know, it really, that was really the that uh, made it spark. Yeah, it we all sparked to that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. And Chris came in and just like, was the perfect, literally the perfect person to, to do that show and, and brought so much to it. And like, you know, his own sort of ideas and voice just.
0: When you first heard his name, were you like, "Oh yeah," or were you like, "Let's see how that works"?
2: No, we were all like, "That's a great idea." Mm -hmm. Like, duh, you know, we should have thought of. I think actually, I think we did think of him even when we were doing our pilot. He was doing that other project, Mm -hmm. and so like, he didn't didn't seem like he was available. So yeah, we were just immediately like the whole executive producer team was just like yes perfect and it was really lucky that it just it all kind of worked out i mean it was it's sort of amazing looking back and thinking about it now like how many sort of hoops we had to jump through and how many things had to go right and and mm-hmm. happen in our favor to just get that show on the air and then you know for the fact that it's been on i mean we're into our third season now and it's been like i think we're approaching 400 episodes or something so it's just like that that happening has been just like a, a really sort of um, a validating thing that that is just amazing like I, I i don't even know how to like how we will ever recreate that again mm-hmm. cuz it's just seeing the reality of like how hard it is to get anything done um it seems like kind of a miracle now in in retrospect
0: were you surprised by the success
2: yeah, I mean, you know, it was like when we had the idea. It was one of those ideas that I was just like, "This should be a show. Like, this feels like a show, and it feel I could see it, and I could just, it made a ton of sense to me. And I saw like even the hashtag game. I'm like, "This is, this will promote itself in a way because like people will be excited to play these things, and and it's just gonna, yeah. You know, so I, I could see how it could succeed, but I don't think I was. I'm just, I think I am a little jaded and cynical and like you go to so many general meetings Mm -hmm. and, and just, you have so many, you just sort of are conditioned when you work in show business to just assume the worst that Mm -hmm. like nothing's ever going to become anything. And so it was just, yeah, it was one of those things where at every step it was just like, yeah, we, we, we moved forward, we moved forward we kept, it just kind of kept going and, uh, and yeah, so that that part of it was very surprising and and we feel, you know, really lucky even though it's just, you know, it's a silly pun-based late night show. It's mm-hmm. not like, you know, we created uh, you know, uh, an academy award-winning film such as The Revenant. <laughs> that actually hasn't won an Oscar yet, but I think it will. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you know, it's uh it, it was still a, a cool thing to be a part of and and to see happen.
0: Right. So, let's go back to the beginning and find out how you got to there. Um, you're from the East Coast, yes? Well, or no, you were born out here, right?
2: Yeah, I'm sort of from all over. My parents were both in the uh, the Air Force, and so we moved around a lot when I was mm-hmm. young. But I was born in Southern California. I spent a lot of time in like the Bay Area, uh, Sacramento, and then I moved to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, from mm-hmm. like uh, from middle school, and then I lived in Memphis, Tennessee, for high school and college. And then I moved to San Francisco right after college where I started doing stand-up and blogging. Um, I was doing stand-up for a couple years like with like uh, Moshe Kasher and Brent Weinbach and uh, um, a bunch of the sort of the, that San Francisco, Ali Wong, like mm-hmm. that whole sort of wave of comedians then. And at the same time, I had like a day job working in advertising that was really boring. And so I started blogging. This is like in 2004 or something before – anybody had a blog or social media was really a thing and um
0: were you what were you on blogspot that's what my first blog was yeah it's still there (laughs)
2: blagblog.blogspot.com uh i'm like ashamed of everything that i wrote then i was you know 23 24 years old and didn't know anything about the internet and just kind of used it as like a place to try to write comedy Mm -hmm. during the day and that ended up actually being the thing that it kind of got me some attention in New York from um this guy Fred Graver who created uh Best Week Ever at VH1 and uh he and and this guy that was working with him Bob Castrone who's a good friend of mine very funny writer and comedian um they you know were like would you want to come write and blog for us and so i was like yeah of course this would be
0: this is when you were in san francisco
2: yeah this is when i was in san francisco and so i left um san francisco after a couple years moved to new york um and got a job you know to launch the sort of best week ever blog or whatever Mm -hmm. with them and um yeah you know it was like at the time i think i was 24 25 and I just remember I'll never forget like the first day of work you know walking into like the offices were at 15 or I'm sorry 1633 Broadway like in Times Square and I just moved to New York I'm like walking into Times Square and I just was like man this is I've achieved the pinnacle (laughs) of like my showbiz dreams I made it I'm here and it's just so funny how like how quickly that becomes like, oh, I'm just a blogger. <laughs> like I want to, <laughs> I want to be, I want to be doing something else. I want to be, you know, writing and and whatever. And like, but at the moment, it felt like you know.
0: It's funny. I re- I remember that feeling of walking into a new job and everything being feeling the feeling that everything is shiny and new. Yeah. But always with the awareness in on like that first day that eventually this will just be old hat and not at all special.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and that's I, life. It's it's a hundred percent. And like the older I've gotten and the more that's, that's happened to me and the more that I've experienced, it's so true that it's just like the thing, especially I think in show business is just that it's like the goal line is always moving. Mm-hmm. Like you never get there. You're always no matter what you do and no matter what you accomplish, there's always further to go and you're, you know, so it's like you can't think of it as trying to reach a destination. It's just like, you know, your career is what you're doing at the moment. And that's like,
0: right. You know. Um. Okay. So moved around a lot as a kid, parents both in the Air Force. What did they do?
2: Uh, my dad was a rescue pilot. So he flew helicopters uh, and my mom was a contracts administrator. So she it was a little bit more of like an office job, but she would, you know, negotiate the purchase of, um, you know military supplies and equipment mm. and stuff
0: do you have siblings
2: yeah i have a little sister aaron she's uh she lives in seattle
0: so what were you like as a kid
2: um i was sort of like an awkward chubby kid <laughs> i would say and i think you know because we moved around a fair amount that uh, you know i feel like i never had sort of a like consistent narrative and surroundings in my life where it was like it feels like it was in chapters mm-hmm. um and and so i think you know I think I had this like need to be liked and accepted and and please people because I would you know come into a new school and you just you're immediately like trying to latch on to mm-hmm. some kind of sort of social acceptance or whatever and um and so you know I think I was just kind of like awkward and nerdy um and 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 in high school was when I started to i feel like get a little bit more comfortable with myself and like you know, I was always the person that had, you know, friends. I just like I had friends in every one of the like social cliques and kind of moved among among them. And, and I don't know, I never really had like, a. you're
0: a human hashtag. Yeah,
2: yeah, it was a human hashtag. That's what they used to call me back in 1997. <laughs> They're like, you're a human hashtag. We have no idea what a hashtag is. But, but remember this, that's what you are. <laughs> uh Yeah, and, and I don't know. And it was like i played sports but i was also on student council and i you know i made good grades but i like smoked a lot of pot and did acid at school Mm. (laughs) like i was just one of those kids that like i didn't really have a kind of holistic identity of like you know you're this and and i just like i don't know i just liked having i just wanted people i think to like me and so i tried to be friends with everybody Mm. and um and I and it was weird though because it was like I grew up in the South. I went to a Southern Baptist high school. That was kind of odd, you know. And I don't think I fit in very well there. I I don't. I was never religious. Um, my we, parents were, but I was not.
0: What 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 religion?
2: Uh, they're just like kind of they're like progressive Christians, you know, mm-hmm. like cool Jesus type Christians.
0: I'm not quite sure what that means.
2: It's just like Jesus can have an earring, you know, <laughs> and like maybe he listens to Daft Punk. Oh, see, like. I feel
0: like. I feel like sometimes the cool Jesus people are secretly more religious than the uncool Jesus people.
2: I I mean they're super religious. Okay. Like they're like it is yes. a huge part of their lives and they're like, like
0: that new Christianity movement yeah. of like big cool earring wearing yeah. pro- people and um loud sermons. Those yeah. people are fucking not fucking around
2: yeah no i i I mean i haven't been in a long time to church with them at a certain point i just finally told him like i'm sorry I, I love you but i can't this is just not for me it feels weird when i go here mm-hmm. like um but i remember even like it's probably been 15 years since i've been to a church service with them but the last time i went i remember just like you know, it's like, yeah, the band is playing rock and rap music and they're like <laughs> l- like showing clips from from movies, from like Face Off or whatever. <laughs> like literally the preacher's like part of the biblical message that he's presenting shares some kind of overlapping theme with Face Off, the John Travolta, <laughs> Nicolas Cage, 90s action thriller. I just was like, what, what is this? But, (laughs) uh, you know, it makes them happy. They, they, they find something in it. So I guess, you know, Are they
0: okay with you not finding something in it? You know, I
2: think they are now like they've, I think they'd prefer if I shared their belief system. And, and, you know, but it's not like, when I was in college, we would have like, you know, spirited debates at the dinner table about Mm -hmm. whether God exists and stuff like that. And, you know, I've chilled out about like I at a certain point I think if if you're an atheist or agnostic I think it's good to go to a place where you're you don't want to be angry about other people's beliefs right. you know what I mean and like I think when you're young it's easy coming out of especially out of like a religious high school I had like a chip on my shoulder and wanted to like disprove everybody mm-hmm. else's stuff and and at a certain point it's just like eh, whatever you believe whatever you want i don't care
0: were you raised with shame around sex and that kind of typical like you usually hear about that stuff with people who grew up very catholic
2: yeah no not like sex was never something that was like that openly discussed in my house like it was never i mean not stigmatized it wasn't like they were trying to keep me away from girls or anything um I mean, in high school, actually, like I sort of like weirdly and manipulatively got into this thing with my parents where my uh, my strategy for dealing with them was like radical honesty, where it was like, (laughs) if I just tell you what I'm doing, you can't get mad at me because I'm being honest. Right. And you want (laughs) to have like an open relationship with me. And I kind of like I think it was, like I said, sort of manipulative where I could sense that it was like it was like a loophole Mm -hmm. where Yes, they, they valued me being open and honest with them more than me adhering to some sort of set of rules. Right. So I just told them whatever I was doing and they didn't approve of it, you know, but I think they, they didn't punish me either because they, you know, didn't want to discourage me from being honest with them.
0: Hmm. Smart. Yeah. It was real As tricky. <laughs> was
2: tricky. I, I'm sure that my kids are going to just like, I'm going to, the, the karma on that stuff is going to come back tenfold. Right um but yeah so i don't know to get back to your question like yeah i don't think sex was ever it was never like a shame or stigmatized thing i mean i I had sex very early the first time and if there was any shame it was just how it was i was 15 Mm -hmm. which is at the time it's like you're a you know horny teenage boy and you're like god this can't happen fast enough and now as an adult man i look back and just like holy shit that's so young that's Mm -hmm. crazy because like i see a 15 year old now and it's just like you are such a small young child you know, and, uh, and I think and the girl that it was with, like she was like the same age as me. And, um, and I think at the time I just was not emotionally ready to do that because I had like weird, I don't even know where it came from, but I did have like weird shame mm-hmm. about it that like, maybe it was latent, you know, the religious conditioning just from being at church, like not right. for my parents, but just from like hearing that sex was a sin or something. I don't know. But, I feel really bad for that girl because it was like we had sex a few times. And then I think I was too ashamed to keep doing it. And so mm. I in my mind it was like, well, we have to break up then. So it was like this poor girl, like, you know, had sex with me. And like, you know, it was both of our virginities. And then it was like, yeah, I got to break up with you because you had sex with me, which is terrible. It's, Again, the karma. It's, it's a ton be. of oldies songs. Yeah.
0: Um, How did you explain it to her?
2: I said that I was like, you know, I feel like we can't, I can't keep having sex with you and I can't, we can't be together because I won't, I won't not want to have sex. Just, I mean, as I'm saying it, it's just like, it's so awful. I feel so terrible well, about but that. but it was very honest. At the time, yeah, it was my confused misguided. This is why 15 year olds should not be right. allowed to have sex is because they just don't have the emotional sort of depth or capacity to... Or sensitivity of, like, knowing, you know, if they – you can't even deal with it yourself. And then this other person – this other poor person's feelings, it's just – um, Was she crushed? It's awful. I You know, I, I don't – not externally. Uh, you know, it was just kind of – I think she was sad. And I'm sure, like – I'm sure that she was not uh, – happy about it on mm-hmm. her when she was alone and we weirdly you know we reconnected you know later in college and and you know it was fine i, I don't did think you hook it, up again we did, we did <laughs> hook up again <laughs> i am uh not proud to admit that yes we did hook up again um but it seemed fine then. Mm-hmm. so um hopefully she wasn't too mad at me and uh yeah there wasn't like permanent damage
0: mm-hmm. so You said that you were a chubby. Did you say misfit or did? did My brain goes. I was like an awkward nerd.
2: I was like kind of like a precocious awkward nerd, and also like I feel like the defining thing about me was like uh, having been born and raised in California until I was ten, and then moving into the deep south. I just always like kind of an outsider, but I never really like fit into the sort of customs and culture of the South then.
0: But it sounds like you were relatively popular enough, right?
2: In high school, not in in high school. Did something
0: happen that made you more comfortable in high school? If you remember,
2: I think what happened was a couple things. I think it was one, um, I lost a little bit of baby weight Mm -hmm. and like, I think just kind of like, you know, came into my own a little bit more which gave me a little bit more confidence Mm. um i you know i found friends finally like a group of friends that i felt like i was a part of like a social circle and um was so then was no longer like quite so desperate for uh, friends or connection or anything and then uh like my 10th grade year i found alcohol in the pot <laughs> and that uh that was really like once once i i started like partying as a as a teenager that was a lot of i think like my identity then mm. it was like i just like loved hanging out and partying
0: did it get out of hand
2: yeah i'm eight years sober now okay. so uh the south i mean where i grew up was like that is the kind of it's sort of a frat culture even in high school so Mm -hmm. it's like it's like they're kind of breeding you for these sort of southern style frat cultures where everybody goes to like Ole miss alabama tennessee you know mississippi state there's like five six schools that all kind of have the identical greek driven sort of you know southern frat bro culture Mm -hmm. and you know, because I just didn't know any better. And that's like what I grew up around and like what I was sort of indoctrinated into. I, uh, I was that for a long time, but the odd sort of part of it was even then there was a part of me that knew like, this isn't really who you are. This is Mm -hmm. just, you're, you're sort of blending in and playing along because, you know, you want people to like you, but this isn't, this isn't who you are. Mm -hmm.
0: Where did you go to college?
2: I went to Ole Miss for my freshman year and then that was kind of at the point at which I realized and I was like in a fraternity and and did that whole sort of freshman college thing and was like, ah, you know, this isn't what I want to do and that was sort of at the point where I was like, I want to be a writer for movies Mm -hmm. and so I went, I was like, I want to go to film school but at that point, my only option really was the University of Memphis where I grew up because like um, you know, I, I did not have the grades or or money really to go try to go to like NYU or mm-hmm. you know like a, a big film school, and they, I probably wouldn't have gotten in. Um, so, yeah, I, I transferred to the University of Memphis and went to through their film and TV program, which is essentially just teaching you how to become like a cameraman at the local news station. <laughs> it's <laughs> like you're literally working on these like old seventies video cameras Mm -hmm. and like i remember they in the editing class we were like on a steenbeck machine like cutting and splicing with tape Mm. (laughs) this is in 2002 you know (laughs) definitely the
0: direction the industry was headed
2: (laughs) they're like we cannot let you need to know how to splice film reels together (laughs) um so yeah that that was kind of but that was like a turning point where i think i I started getting, a. I went in a d- different direction from kind of the frat guy, sort mm-hmm. of southern bro kind of part of my high school identity and got really into, you know, got really into film and got really into um, literature and like just reading a lot and learning a lot. And even though it wasn't a great college, I think I sort of self-taught a lot and, and just really like immersed myself in, um, you know, in film and television sort of theory and culture Mm -hmm.
0: so then you graduated and what did you do
2: so I graduated and, and well, during college, I worked on um, that movie, 21 Grams, the, uh, the Alejandro Iñárritu who did mm-hmm. The Redman, actually directed it. It was like Sean Penn and Naomi Watts and Benicio Del Toro. And I got a job in the locations department when I was in college. 21 um, Grams
0: is the weight of the soul. Right? Yeah, it was
2: the weight of the soul. And it was just it's like heavier than I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. You'd think the soul it's would be light ounces, yeah. and bouncy, but <laughs> no, it's very heavy. Uh, but yeah, they shot that in Memphis and so I was like super excited to get a job working on it and in Mem- in a place like Memphis, it's like, it was like a big deal to be the location assistant <laughs> on a Hollywood movie, even though sure. you're essentially just like a janitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seemed really cool in Hollywood and so I did that and then kind of had the thought of like, well, maybe I'll just like be on film crews, you know, like that's working in the business and that can be like my path and... But then I after doing the whole movie, I was like, ah, uh, no, this doesn't feel
0: what didn't appeal to you.
2: Just the fact that like what I was doing, like I saw the path and it was like you would go from like a location assistant to being maybe an assistant location manager to being a location manager. And even the location managers I was working with who were super nice guys were older. they were in their 30s. Mm. They were super creatively frustrated. They obviously got into this wanting to be, you know, writers or directors or whatever. And it was a little bit of like a, you know, ghost of Christmas future type thing (laughs) of like, okay, maybe this isn't the right path. Right. Um, So I kind of just was like, I don't know what to do. I'm in Memphis. I didn't feel, I felt like I was not ready to go to LA because I didn't have anything to show for myself. I didn't even know what I was doing. I just was like, I want to be a writer.
0: See that there, there, I feel like there's so much maturity in that decision because i don't think in my life i've except lately i don't think i've ever been like i'm not ready to do this or that i've always been like i'm i'm ready for everything yeah the world just needs to you know get with the program i don't
2: I've, know if it was maturity so much as fear okay it was just sense. like it was <laughs> like that seems really hard and scary i don't know anyone there yeah. i don't know how i would afford it it just seemed like another world away and, and right. sort of the same with new york i mean that even seemed faster and scarier and harder and i had this friend from college that moved to san francisco where he got a job in advertising um at like a big uh a big ad agency it was like real fancy offices and expense accounts and it was like kind of like you know digital madmen type stuff mm-hmm. and he was like calling me and, and i was still in memphis and just like telling me like dude this is like the promised land it's great <laughs> i go to open bars every night paid for by you know oracle or whatever <laughs> and it's just like this is you got to come out here and and he had a friend where he was staying the guy that his roommate was out of town like in europe for six weeks and mm-hmm. he's like you can just stay in his room i won't even tell him you know you don't <laughs> have to pay rent or whatever so i'm like okay this is like a great window of opportunity so i, t- I had like maybe a thousand dollars or something moved to san francisco blew the thousand dollars in like I don't know, three of the six weeks that Mm -hmm. I had rent free was super poor, like just barely scraping by like I would spend all day just trying to send resumes out on Craigslist to like (laughs) anything, anything. Uh. I remember one day I just like for 60 bucks, I like put on this pink T-Mobile shirt and like stood downtown with a laptop strapped to my chest to like let tourists play with the like (laughs) laptop on me. And like, I just, just did every dumb thing I could survived on $2 bond me sandwiches Mm -hmm. for probably a month. Um, And finally got this job. The only job I could get was at this very small advertising and marketing firm in Walnut Creek, which if you know the Bay area, so I would have to commute on the train from where San Francisco, where I lived out to walnut creek about an hour and a half <laughs> oh, in the suburbs and uh i did that for like almost two years and that's but that's like well so when i started doing stand-up and and, and that was stand up
0: something you had done before or or wanted to do
2: no i never because in memphis like there just there was one comedy club i never went i was just like i'd watch some of it on tv like i love chris rock and mm-hmm. like richard pryor and like uh uh those are those are the two that i can remember when i was young watching but like yes yeah, so i had never had thought of it or considered it and then i went um when we were in san francisco on new year's eve for some reason oh no i knew david cross that's who mm. i liked mr show a lot yeah and and i liked his stand-up and so he was playing a new year's eve show with it was david cross and Patton oswald and somebody else and i did not know who Patton oswald was um but I was like, I'm going to go see David Cross. So we go on New Year's Eve to this show. I think it was at Cobb's, and it was really the first real stand-up show I'd ever been to. And Patton Oswalt just like destroyed me. I was like, this is the funniest thing. This is the funniest guy I've ever seen. And like something about because I had not seen his comedy anywhere or anything. There was just something about like the way that he did comedy, and the stuff that he talked about, that I was like at the time I related to and felt like for whatever reason, like,
0: yeah, like, I you, mm.
2: I could do that. Not that I thought that I would ever be as good as him, but just that, like, there was more than one way. Like, my concept of stand-up comedy right. sort of was expanded. Uh, and so I made this, like, weird, uh, literally, like, a weird New Year's resolution that's like, I'm going to try an open mic. And I did that year. And then, yeah, and then just kept doing it. It wasn't a disaster. And... I got, you know, I was like, I didn't really have much else to do because I was so broke at the Mm -hmm. time that was like, it kind of also became like just something to do at night, Mm. you know? And um, yeah, so I did it like almost every night for for two years and and really liked it. Um, And then when I moved to New York, I think I just got so busy with work and like, I never really wanted to be a stand-up comedian in the in the sense of like I wanted like a, an hour long special. Right. It was always just kind of like a way into like comedy and into writing and just to like, you know, get a foot into the entertainment industry. And so ultimately I stopped doing it. Um because also I met my wife and like I just I no longer wanted to spend every night <laughs> in a comedy club waiting to do seven minutes for a, you know, half empty room of bored people. Um and I just <laughs> wasn't that good also. Like I think a lot of the people that I I wasn't bad, but I wasn't, I don't think I was great or anything, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, so I don't know.
0: How'd you meet your wife?
2: Uh, I met her in New York. I was still living in San Francisco, and uh, a friend of mine, Bob Castrone, actually, Mm -hmm. who hired me at VH1 with Fred, um, when I was out there visiting, he had a party, and uh, yeah, we just had a mutual friend that, like, brought her to the party, and it was, like, 3 a.m., and we were, like, the last. 10 people there on the the um they used to have this like big patio overlooking like in the lower east side and uh yeah and she just like asked me for a cigarette and I didn't have one but I was like I'm about to go buy some do you want to come and we went and got cigarettes and then like went to this bar and like drank together and then like I went back to her apartment and we made out we did not have sex but we just like made out and s- sort of stayed up talking all night and you know I went back to San Francisco and then I ended up moving to New York six months later, and we stayed in touch on MySpace. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and yeah, we just started dating when I got there.
0: And have you been together ever since? Yeah, yeah. That must have made the move to New York even better, right?
2: Yeah, because it like she like really plugged me into, a like she had like a whole group of friends there that like I just sort of plugged into, and it was really nice. I think because like her friends became some of my closest friends because it's like that's my group of friends that aren't in entertainment Mm -hmm. or comedy or anything and it's like I think that's that was so important for me to have because like a lot of my friends do do this and and while I love them it's just like I feel like it's I don't know like you got to have also some like attachment to like the normal outside world right people that aren't all striving for right showbiz success
0: your relationship with cool jesus alone isn't enough yeah to sustain to sustain you. You. it's true so you were in new york for a while and then you got the job offer to go to wonderwall and that's what you came out to la for
2: yeah so i was in new york for a while doing best week ever um Doing a little bit of comedy and, you know. And
0: doing, like, so was Red Eye, did you do a lot of TV appearances or how did that happen? Mostly just
2: Red Eye and then, like, I did a few VH1 shows, Mm -hmm. like Talking Head stuff. Um, I don't remember how the Red Eye thing first happened. Might have been through Michelle Collins. I think she did it first. and. Um And then I was jealous. Uh, I <laughs> sent them an email. I was like, well, if you're gonna put her on TV, can you put me on TV? <laughs> Michelle's great. She worked with me at Best Week Ever and she's now a, a panelist on The on View. The view. Yeah, yeah, which is hilarious because like when we used to work together, she would sit there and blog about The View. So there's something very satisfying about <laughs> seeing her on The View now. It feels right. like a, a full circle uh, actualization of mm-hmm. her life's purpose. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, but that was, it, weirdly the Best Week Ever thing was like, You know, it was just a blog, but it was was kind of, even now I have like sort of special memories and it has like a place in my heart where it was like the people I worked with were all people that I've I'm still pretty connected with now.
0: Sarah Schaefer worked there too, right?
2: Yeah, so Sarah Schaefer worked there and um and then you know she of course went on to do Nikki and Sarah Live mm. and worked at Fallon and we produced a show with her unfortunately didn't get picked up this year for IFC. But yeah, we're still friends and
0: I met her cuz we were both at the same audition for some show that I think was supposed to be on Fuse or mm. something. And then I ran into her again at At Red Eye with Michelle? I don't know. I just all of a sudden realized, oh, wait, you're, you work or you're friends with Michelle, and I know her through Red Eye. And yeah, it seemed like a small world.
2: Yeah. Yeah. She, I mean, they're, they're both just so smart and funny. And like, um, and and then even like Dan Hopper was a, yeah, he went on to write for College Humor and he just moved out here and I think is, you know, working in television and stuff. And then Bob Castrone, who's Nikki uh, Glazer's head writer on her new show. Oh. Um, and uh emmy blotnick was an intern that we hired who's now like she's writing on nikki's show Mm -hmm. and it's just it's just nice that 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 whole sort of family has has all kind of gone on and 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 done well and like you know it's nice i always am happy to see them um and like i'm always proud of the fact that the blog outlived the show (laughs) like they canceled the show and vh1 for some reason kept the blog going for like another year or two or something and then brought the show back right And then I think the blog, or no, maybe at that point, the second show outlived the blog. But anyway, um, yeah, I did that for a while. And then, you know, as we said, it was like, for a couple years, it was starting to kind of be like, all right, what's the next thing, you know? Mm. And um, John, my now business partner, was an agent at the time that Bob actually put me in touch with. And he kind of called me up one day and was like, hey, would you ever consider moving to LA and working with Lloyd Braun and Gail Berman on this site Wonderwall. And um I was sort of seduced into
0: it's interesting that uh here's a statement slash question that will be interesting to zero of my listeners, but I'm gonna forge ahead anyway. It's interesting <laughs> that an agent got you the Wonderwall job.
2: Right? Yeah, it was, it was it was a little bit um unconventional where like I think He, you know, he knew people at Berman Braun, the company that was producing the Wonderwall project, and they, he knew they were looking for an editor. He had recently met me and I think he just kind of put it together. He wasn't actually my agent at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, he was just like, hey, I met with you. You actually sort of fit this job opportunity I heard about. Why don't you want to meet this guy? And then I met the, you know, Lloyd and Gail, the people that were uh, the head of the company and they ended up wanting to hire me. And so then he kind of became my agent. when i moved i I didn't i was like i guess i guess you own me now (laughs) you you got me this job (laughs) uh i guess i work for you i'm just gonna send you checks from now on
0: did uh when did you marry your wife
2: we got married right before i moved to la so the summer of 2008 um we got married and then like three months later the whole wonderwall thing happened and we just were sort of like, yeah, let's just let's So go. she
0: was on board from the from the get-go? Yeah,
2: I think she was also feeling a little bit of like uh, professional restlessness and just wanted something new. And and we just, it was a kind of impulsive decision. It was one of those things that we just, I remember talking to her and it was just like, yeah, let's just do it, you know? Mm. Let's just do something different. And she had never been to LA at that point. Where is she from? She grew up in upstate New York um, uh, in Pleasant Valley. And uh, you know had had been i think she'd been to the bay area before but had never been to la and mm. so she we moved here literally when we arrived here it was the first time she'd ever been and so i remember thinking like oh man we just got married like this is she's gonna hate it here and like we're gonna get divorced or something but she ended up loving it um and yeah it's been almost eight years now
0: really she loved it right away I feel not like right away okay not yeah, right away t- la is yeah it takes confusing a while. to people
2: i always tell friends because like i was really the first of all my like new york comedy friends uh, the first person to come out here And i remember mm-hmm. they were all like making fun of me and laughing at me and being like you're an idiot for going to la <laughs> really then, why because at the time this is 2008 it was like before the big kind of comedy right. exodus in our yeah. generation and it was like Everyone was just like, oh, man, New York is the best. L.A. sucks. Mm-hmm. You're dumb. And
0: it cha- it felt like it changed fast. I moved out here or back here in 2010 and it felt like and since then, people who have moved out have said to me, it just felt like everyone left.
2: Yeah. I mean, now it's like I mean, maybe it's just because I'm, you know, I'm older, but it's like, I don't know anybody in new york mm-hmm. anymore like i everybody that like i kind of came up with and was like around during that period like all the people we just talked about from best Geber and then like you know my kind of the you know max silvestri and gabe delahay and jenny slate and gabe lehman and that whole sort of group of stand-ups and stuff that i was friends with they all one by one started coming out here right. and like um i think max was actually he moved out he was the last one he moved out um like the end of last year mm. and uh and yeah so it ended up it took a while like the first six months nine months I remember really missing New York and because and and just being like I made a big mistake because I was also not happy with my job and mm. it was just like oh man I really messed up like what are we gonna do and um and I don't know like it, then I we started to like accept LA on its own terms and find the things that we liked about it and kind of find our little sort of pockets of it that that we enjoyed and uh and I think you know once one and then once my career started going back in the direction that I wanted it to and I felt more of a sense of kind of control of that um that helped
0: and oh lost my question found my question your twins how old are they
2: they're 16 months now yeah so we had last uh well in no in 2014 in se- september um yeah we had twin boys are they
0: fraternal or identical
2: they're fraternal twins yeah um
0: so i'm very public about the fact that i'm trying to get pregnant and okay. my husband and i are doing ivf and he has let me know that he will leave me if i have twins or triplets which is very <laughs> it's very well possible too. You're, you're doing IVF and, and i know
2: any of that stuff yeah because like it was really weird like we we had also had been had been um you know kind of trying for a while and uh it was totally a surprise like we were you know at one point my wife was like i'm pregnant you know and we were our first instinct was like oh is everything okay you know so we go to the, the doctor for like the scan thing and the doctor just it was so funny because it was just like he's so matter-of-factly he was like oh yeah there's a heartbeat and uh oh it's twins so i was just like huh <laughs> like, he was just i mean like threw it away just so like you know like oh you have some on your shirt like um you're gonna be responsible for two human lives in nine months no no bigs <laughs> and uh and it was just we were like so shell-shocked and like but then the other I mean, the scary thing is like you know he was just like, also, you know, just so you know, twin pregnancies, a lot more complications. It's way more dangerous. And we're just like, it was so long before I felt like we could be happy about it or like, mm-hmm. you know, feel any sense of excitement or relief. It was just I remember it being a lot of fear and uncertainty. Um and then yeah, and then you know it it worked out, and and they were born, and uh, they're amazing.
0: Uh, how I know that you can't compare it to just having one baby, since no. these are your first firsts. But how was the beginning with twins?
2: Well, th- the thing is when you're when you're pregnant with twins and you're getting ready to have twins, the everyone that you talk to or everything you read is just like. Buckle up. It's gonna Your <laughs> life is over. It's about, you're just gonna, like, you're fucked. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, so it was like, we were so bracing for just, like, you know, insanity that the first six months kind of ended up feeling a little bit anticlimactic. You know, it was just like, oh, that was fine. Like, they, when they're really, really young, like when they're newborns, they just sleep all the time and give them a lot of bottles and change their diapers. And that's all they do. Like they Mm. don't do anything. They just lay there. And so, you know, it was definitely a lot of work in that like you're, you're not sleeping normal hours. Mm. Um, And it's like, you you know, you're, you you don't know what you're doing as a parent. So you're just trying to like, there's a little bit of like stress and, and uncertainty to that. But it actually just, I, I, my memory of it was like, oh, this isn't as hard as I was expecting it to be. Um, but then, you know, I, I think it's actually been harder as they've gotten a little bit older now, like once they're crawling and then when they're walking, especially, um, that's where you're just like, it's physically exhausting because mm-hmm. you're chasing them around and trying to stop them from killing themselves constantly <laughs> they don't know any better because they're really little and dumb right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, But yeah, but at the end of the day, it's like, it's like that's the funny thing about parenting that I've, my experience has been just that like, I feel weird talking about it because I just think everything I want to say about it, it sounds like such a cliche because, th- and like they're all true. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's, everybody is already Like thought, they're the best thing you've ever done. They're the bad. best thing, yeah. I mean, it's it's like all that stuff of like, how much I could sit here and go on about how much I love them and how much fun it is and, and all that stuff. But it's, I just, I'm always like, like, I guess maybe the sort of, cynical comedy writer and me is like oh that's so, like yeah i've heard that a thousand times <laughs> and like like none of that's original not that it has to you know, your your mm-hmm. love for your children needs to be a special original thought <laughs> but um yeah they're they're just like it's just everyday i feel like the the thing about it is just that it it's like something that's so much bigger and more important than anything else in your mm-hmm. life and like that's the best part of it is that it's like the ultimate um reason to live.
0: <laughs> have you always wanted to have kids?
2: Um not like I always like thought that I would have kids, but I never you know, I was never like, you know, gosh, when are we going to have kids, you know? Like uh it wasn't something I was like I remember sort of actively mm-hmm. thinking a lot or desiring about, but I just always in the back of my mind was kind of like, oh, someday we'll have kids, you know? And and then yeah, then it just like it creeps up on you. Mhm.
0: Um Gosh, there's too many directions I want to go. Well, let me ask this because it's something I've been wondering. Um, you got sober eight years ago. Mm-hmm. What, uh, like, what was your bottom?
2: I think a lot of it was moving to LA. You know, like when you live in New York, it's a city and a culture that you don't have to drive. You don't have to drive. Everybody drinks a lot. Bars everyone's, are open till four. Everyone's out late. Yeah, the, it's like it's easy. I think to be an alcoholic or whatever you want to call it in new york and not realize it you know what i mean it's just like it's normalized Mm. and i think when i moved out here which la is obviously a much more you know you got to drive everywhere it's a little bit more of i think a health conscious culture Mm -hmm. i mean all again all those la cliches are kind of true too um and i think it was like it sort of shined a light on like my behavior being different than other people's behavior here like I would hang out with friends and it's like oh what we're not all gonna like stay out till 3 a.m. and like get blackout drunk and you know go crazy and were and it, you
0: using drugs as well
2: just like pot and like you know I every now and then I would do other drugs if they were around but I was never like a drug user okay. of you know of harder stuff or whatever so it was, it was mostly alcohol mostly booze yeah and I was like I was a fairly functioning uh, drunk, I think. Like, you know, it was a surprise to some of my friends that I got sober. Other friends of mine were not surprised. <laughs> uh, you know, and it was more of just like I was never like, you know, uh, violent or sc- scary alcoholic i was like i just got too enthusiastic like i was like i would get so excited about having fun and partying that i just would like overdo it mm-hmm. and like didn't have the ability to sort of stop you know And i didn't know when to stop right. and uh and then i think i moved out here and i was also kind of feeling that like depression of you know i miss new york i don't like this new job what am i doing i just sold out like all this stuff and like i just remember kind of like a few sort of months of sitting alone at my shitty apartment in Santa Monica, like drinking Jack Daniels by myself. Mm -hmm. And it just started to get like, I don't know. I just started to feel like this is a bummer. And my wife was like noticing it and just like, this isn't, this doesn't seem good or normal or healthy. And yeah. And so I decided uh, to quit after one particularly drunken night decided that I was done um like a lot, i feel like a lot of people that drink like you have those nights where you wake up and you're like the mornings you wake up and you're like i'm never drinking again <laughs> and i had had those before too but this time was like i meant it um and so yeah i just la is like the easiest place in the world probably to get sober because there's so much like you know 12 recovery steps and yeah. recovery culture here and especially where i was living on in santa monica on the west side it's a big thing out there and uh yeah, I just, and I, I kind of met some people that helped me out and, and stopped. And, you know, it, like looking back, I mean, I don't know if like, um, it's because I quit drinking, but I do know that like my life went in a much better direction once I did, you mm-hmm. know? And so now it's like, I think, I mean, I'm not really involved in recovery and I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not a big like 12 stepper type person, but, I also know that just like it's not even like I don't I don't drink anymore just because I feel like it's I don't miss it and it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like this feels like why would I? Right. Yeah.
0: I want to talk to you guys about Curology. You know what sucks? Adult acne and also teenage acne. And arguably baby acne, basically any sort of skin eruption uh, of the acne sort, is something that pretty much blows and makes you feel insecure and makes you feel like, oh, great, there goes my social life because now I'm just going to have to stay inside. Uh, and let's say you don't have time to get to the dermatologist for prescription skincare, or you can't afford it. Well, that is where Curology comes in uh, because they have revolutionized access to prescription skincare. You Take five minutes to complete a profile at Curology.com. And you upload pictures of your skin. You get paired online with a licensed medical professional who assesses your skin and prescribes the right mix of acne fighting ingredients for you. Your prescription is shipped straight to you. Today, my listeners get their first month of customized prescription acne treatment free when they go to Curology.com and enter my code BESTFRIEND in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. You have nothing to lose. That's 30 full days on the path to clear skin free. That's Curology.com, C-U-R-O-L-O-G-Y.com and my code BESTFRIEND. So again, that's Curology, C-U-R-O-L-O-G-Y.com and my code BESTFRIEND. Let's take some questions that people sent in over Twitter. Cheers, When we
1: ask and send them in, they're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for
0: answering these questions from our fans. Okay. Roger Arnold says, from first to last, in what order do the following labels apply to Alex? Strategenius. genius Expert biz dev guy.
2: <laughs> so these are all made up bajillion hits <laughs> terms that I think he pulled off my website. Um, except biz dev guy, that's real. That's a thing that people do. Um, which is also, I just think that phrase is so funny. Biz dev. Yeah, I'm here to develop some business. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess uh, from what I said, I mean I'm kind of a biz dev guy, mm-hmm. you know, and then maybe a strategy genius. And then maybe a tech expert. I'm not. I'm not really a, a tech expert.
0: Right there we go. The other questions are about at midnight and twins, which okay. we've already covered. Yeah. So I say we move on to just me or everyone. Yeah. Sometimes I ponder
2: on something I
1: have
0: thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Okay. This is where people write in with things they think or do, and they wonder, is it just mirror everyone? And we say, if we also do this. Danielle Lynn says, I always choose the driest looking shower stall at the gym. Seems cleaner or used less frequently, just mirror everyone. At first I was like, oh yes, I do that. And then I thought, wait, no, I absolutely don't do that. For me, it's all about the location of the stall. Like I don't want to be the one near closest to the hallway that feels exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, if someone is in one, I don't want to go right next to them if I can avoid it. So yeah, for me, it's just all about, it's almost like, like where to stand on an elevator. It's all about other people.
2: For me, it's a hundred percent about shower pressure, Mm -hmm. water pressure. Uh, I've realized at my gym, most of them have none. And there's one, (laughs) there's one shower head that actually has decent water pressure. So I always... Go for that one or wait around for?
0: Is there a line for that one?
2: Sometimes it gets weird, where because it's also like an open shower thing, where it's like you're standing there naked with other naked men, and I'm kind of just like, "Are you almost done with that shower?"
0: (laughs) Is that how showers at gyms for dudes usually are?
2: I don't know. I I go to the YMCA, so Mm -hmm. that's how that they're kind of old school about stuff. Literally, everyone in there is at least seventy years old. (laughs) Um, So I don't I don't know if that's all gyms.
0: Okay. Flashdabble says, when I walk by people at work who speak a different language, I always think they are talking about me. I think that's fairly common. It's sort of like if you walk by people and they start laughing, you're like, what? What, what is it about me? Or maybe that's just for narcissists. Just me or every narcissist.
2: Or xenophobes. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> if you If you just have a weird paranoia that everybody from another culture that speaks right. another language is somehow focusing and obsessed with you.
0: I mean... But sometimes there have okay. Well, so I had a friend from Finland, and I remember when I was very young, and I remember being at her house and hearing like a bunch of Finnish with the but hearing my name in there too.
2: Oh, and yeah, like, come that's, on, that's that's I'm I- I- definitely that's me unnerving. you're talking about, yeah, yeah, that's the worst.
0: Uh, JMOs and Bobos says, I even no, sorry, I get even more excited about my cup of coffee based on the shape of. Of and or designs on my mug need an a r i y m b f mug Yes, I feel like mu- I feel like mugs are a direction I should go, uh but also heavy and breakable to ship unless we were to do some kind of plastic mug, which I don't even think they make those anymore um i It's less that I get excited about my coffee based on the shape and the design of the mug than we have a zillion mugs, but i there's like two that I like to use. I just have my favorites. You? Yeah.
2: It's all about size for me. The largest vessel of caffeine is what I usually go for. Mm-hmm.
0: How many cups of coffee a day?
2: Too many. Probably three or four.
0: Yeah. Same with me. Do you have like a cutoff after a certain point you won't drink it?
2: Yeah. I'm, I am I think I'm a little sensitive to it in the afternoon. So usually I'll have an after lunch cup and mm-hmm. that's it.
0: Mike Azilla says, nothing makes me happier than when I happen to have something in my purse that someone needs. This I do not feel this way. I don't feel great if someone... Like if someone needs a Band-Aid and I don't have one, I probably feel bad. Band-Aids in particular or like any sort of... Or if someone needs Advil or something like that. Like if someone's uncomfortable. But in general, I would not say that I'm like, yes, I do have a pen. Here's my pen. Now I'm worried you're going to steal my pen. I just have a bunch of tampons. (laughs) It's I always, if I'm looking for a pen, pull out a tampon or vice versa from my purse let me make that clear um and yet in my whole life i don't think a woman has ever asked me for a tampon it's weird do i look like someone who wouldn't have tampons you know what it is maybe people just don't ask other people for tampons that frequently
2: but you also don't want to look like someone that has a ton of tampons I feel like.
0: that's true that's not yeah because then you wonder like what message don't be the I woman
2: sending? that's just like that woman has so many tampons
0: <laughs> right <laughs> okay Good point, but in general, if someone needs something and they ask you, do you are you do you feel good if you have it?
2: I feel no. I feel more like feeding ducks at a pond. It's like I don't want them to know that I have the thing that they haven't taken the necessary right. steps to go out. Because I, I mean, as I don't carry a lot of stuff around, so usually it's either like gum or uh my I, I use those i'm like addicted to those flossy things oh yeah you know and the so ones my, that have like the little yeah. tip
0: do you, but do you ever use the other tip on the other side
2: no i don't use the pick i just use the pick. i just use the floss part and but now i'm like like serious i can't have a meal without having one without flossing in your
0: teeth or you're just into flossies
2: i'm just so now i'm like so sensitive to if there ever is any food at all i just feel like i have to like compulsively have to floss after mm-hmm. every meal So my partners have also gotten addicted to them, but they don't fucking like go buy them. So they just always Uh, want my flossies. So it's like I'm just handing out flossies left and right. I'm not made of flossies. No. I can't do that. No. no, Get your own flossies.
0: Have you mentioned this to them or is this your passive aggressive (laughs) way? Passive aggressively. It's
2: like if you guys are listening, get your own fucking flossies.
0: So do you guys all just sit there like after lunch just flossing in the same room?
2: I'm ashamed to say that we do sometimes. it's, (laughs) It's probably... If you were just an objective outsider, it would probably be disgusting to watch.
0: (laughs) Now, what happens? You're somewhere. Maybe you just had something to eat. There's no flossies. There's just regular floss. What do you do?
2: I always have flossies.
0: (laughs) So like this, this just there's there's just no way this would happen. I
2: mean, no. There's been times where I've like gone to social events or something where I've forgotten to. Have flossies in my pocket, and it really deeply stresses me out. And I like fixate on it, and I think about it, and I'm just like, I just want a flossy. It's real. It's a problem. For How me, many are in your
0: pocket right now?
2: uh They're in the car. Okay. I don't have them with me right now because I knew I wouldn't be eating anything, so right. I won't need one. But like, I always have them. Have them. Um, this is not a lie. I have them in my car. In my backpack, at my desk at my office, in my kitchen at my home, mm-hmm. and in my bathroom upstairs at my home. Five locations that I keep stocked with flossies at all times.
0: <laughs> How frequently do you buy them?
2: I get them on Amazon in like big bags of three. Right. And so every, I have to get a new bag of three every couple months, maybe.
0: Where's your wife come down on flossies?
2: She'll use one every now and then, but she's not, she's not like OCD about it like I am. Mm-hmm.
0: It's fascinating. Feels
2: good to get that off my shoulders. Yeah,
0: don't carry that around. (laughs) feel
2: unburdened here.
0: Mallory says, I feel like a jackass when correcting people on my dog's gender. Hashtag, does Foxy sound like a boy dog's name? You know, this happens with Wendy all the time. For some reason, even though a number of people have said to me, including one Greg Heller who's frequently on this show, have said, she looks female. She looks like a, she's a very feminine dog. Um, People that, I see on the street always assume she's a he and just today someone said is he vicious he looks vicious (laughs) which is like a a funny joke to make if you're looking at a cute dog or something but people always assume she is a he Hmm. you you have dogs I I have a
2: one dog bought her he's a pug and, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of times, you know, you always have those, like, awkward stop-in chats as you're walking right. with other dog owners. And it's always, yeah, how, how old is she? And, like, oh, it's a he. Like, I don't care, you know. But, it's, yeah, it's always, like, a weird – I don't know where people get their weird assumptions about right. dogs. I mean, he has a penis that you can see. It's right there. Um, it happens with my kid a lot, too, where I, my, my son, Winter, is – named winter Mm. which for some reason people decided that's a girl's name i'm like it's not a gender specific name it's a season Mm -hmm. um and he has kind of long uh, yeah so it's always like i've had so many of these like awkward things where i have to be like oh no he's a boy and i don't care but people get like really apologetic about it like i'm so sorry i'm like don't be sorry who cares he's He's 16. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what you're saying.
0: If you dressed him in blue, would they not make that assumption? Or do these colors not mean anything anymore?
2: It's tougher. I mean, when they're babies and like toddlers, because what they're wearing half the time is just not even a Mm. real outfit. All
0: children are androgynous at that age. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Colleen says, for some fucked up reason, I feel like I can't hear when I don't have my glasses on. So basically, I'm deaf when blind. I have all sorts of weird things like this. Like just today, I, um, I've decided it's time to wear my retainers again, even though they barely fit and they might be doing more damage than, uh, actually that's, I have a question for my dental listeners are, is wedging in retainers that no longer fit. Will it eventually push my teeth back where they need to go? Or am I somehow like making things worse? That's a question that I have. Um, But anyway, I had them in and I was trying to do something on my computer and I was like, I felt it was like as if someone had tied my hands behind my back just because I was wearing retainers. Mm. Uh, So yeah, I have all sorts of weird like, like I, um, I never wear sunglasses because if I have them on, I constantly am taking them off because like, I feel like I can't really, I don't know. This weird shit. You?
2: Yeah, I mean if if I don't have my flossies, I feel like Helen Keller.
0: <laughs> <laughs> J for A Rose says, have no problem touching all the produce when shopping. Disgusted thinking about all the hands that touch what I'm buying. You know, I honestly never think about it. When you point it out though, yeah, it's pretty gross. But when I think about when I think about anything in terms of like the, the supply chain that ultimately results in what's on your plate, then I begin to like kind of get the heebie-jeebies. That's why you don't think about it.
2: Or you wash your fruit and don't worry about it. Like this this question for some reason bothers me because I'm like, why would you not examine the produce that you're about to purchase to detect firmness, ripeness? To I'm not going to just go blind buying – Pears that aren't ready to be eaten. That's irresponsible. It's irresponsible. It's irresponsible. To do Why that? would you do that? You're going right. to waste those pears because yeah. they're not ready. And right. the only way to determine whether or not they're ready, because you can't x ray them, mm-hmm. you got to pick it up and feel it and know if it's a good piece of fruit.
0: Do you feel like you're a good fruit selector?
2: My wife is a great fruit selector. She's a trained chef, so she's taught me some of this stuff. Mm. I do feel like at any time I go to the store to get produce that she's asked me to get, invariably, It was the wrong selection. So like I'm a very meticulous fruit selector, even though I will never. I just am. Even though you're
0: not good at it.
2: Well, I think I'm good at it, but I just think it's like a little sort of mind game that she plays of just like, this isn't a good tomato. I'm like, (laughs) what is wrong with it? It is perfect. And she's like, she can always find a flaw in the tomato. That's just like her way of subtly reinforcing that she knows what's what with food.
0: (laughs) And lastly, Andrew McCormick says the same week I finally pick up a punch card is the the same I get sick of eating at that place. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really have good luck with punch cards. There probably are a few in my wallet. I think in my entire life I've never filled one up. Um, I find that I get a little too obsessive about it. So if I ever find if it's a place. Generally, punch cards were a part of my life when I had a day job that involved buying coffee on the way there, and there was usually some kind of punch card. But then it was was usually a place I would go all the time, and if I ever forgot the punch card, I was kind of devastated because it had become my project. Um, Recently, I bought something on Groupon, and I don't use Groupon very often, but I had these two vouchers, and then I discovered that one was going to expire, or they are both going to expire like very sort of shortly after I bought them uh and so I had to select the items I want and I by the when I finally selected it was for these photo canvases that were terrible quality as it turns out but when I finally finished I felt like this weight had been lifted off me it was like it became this humongous burden of like I have to I have to get this this photo that I paid for that I paid less than it's really worth, but actually it's worth less than the shipping that I had to pay. And I just thought, I think I won't do that kind of shit again. I don't have the constitution for it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. My, my mom did that once where she got a, she got a on for some, it was like an in-studio photo thing for our whole family. So mm-hmm. our vision was like, we're going to have a nice family photo. We're going to look great. And then like, it was just, they were the worst. They were the worst pictures. We looked like just dorky weirdos and, uh, and then she ended up not buying the full photos because like like put <laughs> you the gotta water, cut your loss. she like put the watermarked ones on her Facebook or whatever, and I've never used like the punch card things the only one I ever used was like a, a frozen a froyo shop mm, sure and then they just it just became a depressing reminder of how much frozen yogurt I was eating, and I was just like i, I it's not worth the free one <laughs> like i don't I don't want a visual reminder that I'm a fat piece of shit you know
0: <laughs> uh which froyo place was it?
2: Uh, In Los Feliz Froyo Life, Mm. if you're in L.A., check it out. Great topping selection, really nice flavor selection. Do
0: you um, serve yourself? Is it one of those? Yeah,
2: I'm like a little dab of yogurt and four pounds of candy on top kind of guy. It's almost like a candy cereal with uh, a little bit of yogurt as the milk. Um, It's pathetic.
0: How do you feel about gummy bits? This has come up on the show before, but it's been a long time. Gummy bears on frozen yogurt.
2: No, I'm not a gummy bear guy. I'm i okay. I'm like a chocolate, like peanut butter cup. Like I like more of those, like kind of s- not savory, but yeah, like chocolates and peanut butters and caramels, those kinds of You've things. You've gotten not- Jeff's attention.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Jeff gets it. He totally knows how Froyo life works. Uh, yeah, I'm all about Froyo life. You're it, about that Froyo life. It's placed on Hillhurst. Hillhurst. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Jeff, where are you with punch cards?
2: Uh, the only. One that I ever scored on was that Philly cheesesteak place out in Burbank that we used to go to all the time. And that was good. That was like, yeah. that was our thing. We would go there every week and we really liked it. Um, but other than that, it's just, I I've never cashed in one other than that. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's depressing. It's like an unfinished project. Yeah. And I just, it just makes me sad to have it with like three punches in it and carry it around. So I think, old, I usually don't do it. My Even,
0: old wallets have, like, I feel, I, I know I have an almost used up coffee bean and tea leaf punch card from, The late 90s.
2: Yeah, it seems very uh, Radio Shack Battery Club. It's very... Yeah. It's kind of old school. Yeah. Yeah. Froyo Life also did this other depressing thing where on Wednesdays, because they sell it to you by the weight, you know? Mm. So they do this thing of you guess the weight, you get it for free. But it's this like humiliating interaction where you're like, you have to verbally admit what a piece of garbage you are. (laughs) Like, this is... Three pounds of candy <laughs> like, <laughs> Just I don't want to say it out loud Can I just pay for it And be out of here So I can shamefully eat it in my car
0: <laughs> Did you ever get it right?
2: <laughs> no I, I was like Well at first I tried it And then realized like How deluded I was About like, the amount of ounces. yogurt yeah, <laughs> like, You know it's a normal serving Like four ounces of yogurt right? No it's four pounds So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well Alex Blagg, It was delightful having you on the show Thank you so much
2: Thanks for having me This was uh The best free therapy that I've ever had.
0: (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Listeners, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, perhaps flossies, perhaps you're feeling something in your gums right now. Um, or pretty much anything else that you might buy because Amazon has everything. Click through the banner on my website, dot com. doesn't cost you anything extra. It helps out the show. There's PayPal links on the right side of the website as well. Thank you so much for your PayPal support. We have ringtones available. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. And also... Touch the tushy. Touch, touch the tushy, you can get tushy, these if you go to the, the store tushy, on my website, AllisonRosen.com. Also, new tushy, A-R-I-Y-N-B-F tushy, logo t-shirts. There's uh, also the Bumper tushy, Shoot tushy, tushy, Thursday Gang tushy, tushy, bonus episode with special guest John Patton is um, finally available as well. You can get that from my website um, and all sorts of other exciting things on the website. Um, subscribe, itunes.com slash and leave us a nice comment if you want. I think you want to follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at Ariymbf. Uh, email us Ariymbfshow at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. Jeff, where should we go for you?
2: You can find me on Facebook at <laughs> You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox, and also at Froyo Life in line.
0: <laughs> and Alex, um, tell them where to find you and plug whatever you would like to plug.
2: Uh, you can just find me on Twitter at Alex Blag. Um, and I'd like to plug flossies. I think, uh, dental <laughs> hygiene is very important. Uh, you, you're going to want your teeth to last a long time. And so get in there with some flossies mm-hmm. and get them on Amazon through, uh, Allison's link, like she said.
0: Thank you. And also watch at midnight and workaholics. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. I should uh, workaholics every Thursday, uh, 10 o'clock, I think, 10 30, something like that. And midnight's on at midnight. Comedy Central.
0: All right. Awesome. Thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you
1: know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go.
2: Yeah, Allison Rosen is your new best friend.